Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We confess together and affirm together the words of that song. You are our King. You are our Sovereign. You are our Lord. You are the Savior of all who call upon your name. And the passage to which we come today is resting upon that foundation. It is only in light of this this vision of Jesus that has been laid out for us in chapter 1 and that will be laid out for us over the next 13 chapters. It is only against the backdrop of that vision of Jesus that the warnings, five in number, the first one here in Hebrews 2, have such great effect. It is because of the majesty of your position. It is because you are the king who holds the worlds in your hand. That we dare not drift away from your word and neglect so great a salvation. Lord, there is no one here in this room, in the midst of this people, there is no one who is exempt from this warning. There is no one to whom this exhortation is not addressed. There is no one who does not need to pay careful attention in order that they do not drift away. To the destruction of their very own soul. So Father. I pray that you would send your spirit. And I pray that you would meet people where they are. For those who are right now. Safe within the harbor of salvation. Within the harbor of Christ. I pray that you will use this passage. To anchor them all the more securely. To the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for those who come this morning having drifted. I pray that you will use this passage. And you will use the warning. And you will use the threat. And you will use the comfort that is offered. To draw them back home. Back into the harbor of salvation. Back into the port of Christ. Make this word a means of grace this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to the accomplishment of your good and sovereign purpose. We humbly and yet boldly ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I love going to the beach. For as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the ocean. Its immensity, its power, its mystery, the ebb and the flow of its tides, how that is linked with the phases of the moon. I mean, just astounds me and I love it. 
However, my, my fascination with the ocean is not without a certain degree of fear. When I was younger, one of my favorite activities when my family would go to the beach was to take an inflatable raft out into the water and to push it out past the breakers and to then lay flat on my back and just float with my eyes closed and to feel the waves taking me up and down and, and, and up and down and just that feeling of being lost in the power that's greater than myself. I loved it. But always lingering in the back of my mind, probably, probably because of a terrifying story my dad told me in order to prevent such a thing from ever happening, there's this fear of becoming drowsy and being lulled to sleep by the gentle rolling of the waves while the tide carries me out to sea only to awaken hours later to find myself out of sight of the land, the thing of nightmares. Now, where my family usually vacationed, there were no lifeguards to keep watch over me. There was no one to notice if I was to drift away, and there was no one to rescue me from this danger. Now, it probably would have never happened. Surely someone would have seen me drifting away and would have called for help, or surely out there on the outskirts, a fishing boat patrolling by would have found me and would have come to my aid, but the fear of such a thing happening was sufficient to keep me at least visually tethered to the shore, to keep me from drifting away beyond my ability to return, beyond my ability to swim back. And that's the image that fills my mind when I read Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. See, this is the first of five warning passages which are given in the book of Hebrews and all of them are cautioning against the same danger and that danger is that of apostasy which is a word that we're not terribly familiar with particularly in Baptist life apostasy means falling away from Christ falling away from his gospel and thereby falling away from the salvation that is found only in him in this first warning passage, the author is employing this very vivid metaphor of, of a boat drifting away in order to make his point. So he says in verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. And that verb translated drift away is actually a nautical term. It describes a ship that has drifted off course or a boat in a harbor that has slipped off its moorings and has drifted away. And the reason this metaphor, this imagery of a drifting vessel is such an effective metaphor for him to use is because what he is warning against is something that happens very slowly, almost without warning, through lack of attention and usually goes unnoticed until danger has struck and it is too late. See, no one intentionally allows their ship to drift off course. No, it, it happens when we neglect to drop anchor. And, and no one intentionally allows a boat to slip away from the dock or to slip out of port. No, it happens when we neglect to tie the tight knot tethering the boat to the dock. Well, likewise, I would say that no one sets out to commit apostasy. No one decides one day to fall away from the faith and to drift away from Christ. Rather, it happens slowly. It happens imperceptibly. 
It happens through neglect and lack of careful attention until one day to our utter horror, we realize that we've drifted away so far that there's no way back. It is not for no purpose that the author of Hebrews is going to issue us chilling warnings to this effect. For instance, once you turn over with me one page to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Where he writes that in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now my purpose this morning is not to delve into that passage, but it relates to the passage at hand. Because the warning of the book of Hebrews is that there is a point of no return. And that is meant to scare you half to death. There is a point of no return, a point at which the current has drug you so far away from the faith that you can't even see the shore anymore. And the book of Hebrews was written to warn us of this danger and to encourage us while there is time, while it is still called today, to secure our ship to the anchor of the gospel. And that's precisely the point of this sermon this morning. My objective is to warn you against the danger of drifting away from the faith and falling away from your allegiance to Christ and to provide you with a safeguard against this drift, to provide you with a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Because the absolute worst thing that could happen to you is that you wake up one day and find that you have drifted away and that there is no way back. The absolute worst thing that could happen to you is for you to wake up one morning standing before the judgment seat of Christ expecting to be welcomed into His presence and He says, depart from me, I never knew you. And beloved, I will preach until I can't speak anymore to prevent that from happening. And you need to take the hands of your faith and to secure an absolute death grip upon this gospel that we're going to unpack in the book of Hebrews in order to prevent that from ever happening. Because it's not to people. You would, you would not have looked at the congregation to which this letter is written and said, yep, I bet they're going to fall away. No, they've once been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've participated in the powers of the age to come and of the good word of God. And then they've fallen away. And if it can happen to them, it can happen here. 
And God forbid that it does. And that's why he sends us passages like this. And that's why he directs our attention to them this morning. So that we will pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. So let's give attention this morning to verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 2. Let's hear the warning and then let's take both hands and cling to the anchor of the gospel that will be presented to us. We'll begin with the warning that's issued in verses 1 through 3. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I remind you that the congregation to whom this letter is written are Jewish Christians and they're steeped in the Jewish scriptures and tradition. And he says that at some point in the past, They heard the message of the gospel. They heard the word of Christ. And they professed their faith in Jesus. And they confessed their allegiance to Him as Messiah and Savior and Lord. But lately, something has happened which has caused the author to get concerned and to actually sit down and write this letter and send it to them. He's worried for them. Because lately, for reasons of apathy and for reasons of negligence and as we'll come to find out in some cases for reasons of persecution they've begun to drift away from Christ and to drift away from his gospel and they've begun to turn back to the old things they've begun to turn back to the old covenant and to the temple and to the priesthood and to the sacrifices and they are in danger grave danger of rejecting Christ altogether That's why he warns them five times like this against doing that very thing. In verse 2, he makes reference to the word spoken through angels, which refers to the old covenant law. In Jewish tradition, it's a tradition which has biblical warrant, as I'm going to show you in just a second. They believed that the old covenant that was given to Moses was given by God through the mediation of angels on Mount Sinai. You say, I never remember reading anything like that in Exodus 19 or 20. Well, it's not there. But in Deuteronomy 33 and verse 2, when Moses is speaking to the congregation of Israel right before they're going to enter into the promised land, he recalls the presence of 10,000 holy ones that were there when the law was given at Sinai. He's speaking of angels. Psalm 68, 17 attests to the very same thing. The angel's presence at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Do you remember in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was making his defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, 38 and 53? He makes reference to the law which was given through the mediation of angels. Paul says the very same thing in Galatians 3 and verse 19. And his point here, the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. His point is that if those who transgressed or turned away from or disobeyed or rejected the word spoken through angels, the old covenant law, if they receive the just penalty of their sins, how will we escape who have now received the word spoken through Christ, the Son, the new covenant gospel? I mean, you've read the Old Testament, right? 
You've read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you've heard the warnings of God saying, anyone who turns away from this law will be cursed and will be cut off from the midst of the people. If every transgression and every disobedience received that penalty, how will we escape if we neglect this great salvation that's been given through Jesus Christ? It's a rhetorical question, people. The answer is obvious in the asking. We won't. If under the old covenant they turned away from the words spoken through angels and they were cursed and cut off, that and worse will happen to those who turn away from the new covenant. That's how the warning works in this passage. It's all based on what was in chapter 1, that Jesus is better than. Jesus is better than the words spoken through the... Jesus is better than the prophets, and therefore the words spoken through Him is better than the prophetic word given in the Old Testament. Jesus is better than the angels, and therefore the words spoken through Him is better than the word given through the angels in the Old Testament. And this better prophet, and this better messenger, and this better mediator who has brought a better covenant and a better gospel, he must be listened to, and he dare not be neglected. So that's how the warning works. The question is now, how does it apply? What what does it look like to drift away from what we have heard? And what does it mean that there is no escape for those who do? Well, there are two clues in this verse. Go ahead and have a seat, Ben. There are two clues in these verses which help us to construct a picture of what this might look like in our own lives. I want to point them out, all right? The first is found in verse 1, and it's the word drift away. We've already touched on this. It means that what he's speaking about does not happen suddenly, all right? It's not a violent activity. Drifting away is a slow almost imperceptible falling away from Christ, which may only be perceived only an ex- over an extended period of time as the ship of our soul drifts further and further away from the harbor of Christ. So that's the first clue. It's something that happens slowly, imperceptibly. The second clue is found in verse 3, and it's the word neglect which speaks of an apathy, it speaks of a negligence, a careless lack of attention to something of great importance, something like falling asleep on a raft when the tide is dragging you out to sea. All right. So we take these two words and we take these two images, and now I think that we can construct a picture of what it might look like, not just for the Hebrews in the first century, but for people in Nixa in the 21st century to drift away from the message of the gospel. I want to paint two images. One for me, and the other for you. Here's what it might look like for me to drift away from what I've heard as a, as a pastor. It might look like a slow but steady decline in spiritual fervor and, and spiritual passion over the next few years. I just can't get as excited about Jesus as I used to. 
And as a result, my time in the Word and my time in study and my time in prayer and in the pursuit of Christ steadily decreases as my pursuit of other activities and other interests increases. Maybe it might be politics for some pastors. Maybe it's golf for others. I don't know. But I've got other things that are capturing my attention and securing my affection. And I'm giving myself to those and giving myself to Jesus less. And so increasingly what I do as, as I come here on a Sunday morning is I just, I just preach recycled sermons out of the file. And when I do happen to step into the pulpit with some new material, you can begin to sense that something's different. The center has shifted. Christless, moralistic sermons replace a clear and passionate proclamation of the gospel. I become increasingly negligent in my duty to guard the church's doctrine and practice because secretly, I, I, I never would confess this, I'm not sure I'm convinced any longer of the authority of the Scriptures. Finally, as I become frustrated over what I now perceive to be a dead-end job in a dying church, I resign in order to pursue a career with more upward mobility. That's drifting away, and it happens behind the pulpit. And it happens in the pew. Here's what it might look like for you. It will look different, to be sure. Your career, as it were, is not wrapped up in these things. But it happens nonetheless. You know, between the football games and the traveling soccer teams, and the family trips to the lake. You find yourself away most Sundays. And the gathering of the church and the hearing of the word of God and the worship of Christ, these things cease to be a priority in your life. And being away so often, you find that it increasingly becomes more difficult to rouse yourself out of bed and come back on Sunday mornings. Until finally the difficulty outweighs the benefit, and you just simply slip away for good. Or perhaps something happens here and you become offended, maybe by something that is said or by something that is done, and you can't get over that. And out of anger and out of bitterness, you leave and you go to another church and you're there for a while until the same thing happens there and you drop out of that church. And, and after a while, you become convinced that, that no church is good enough and that no church is holy enough to accommodate the likes of you. All churches, in fact, are fundamentally flawed, and you're better off on your own. Whatever the cause may be, the drift is always marked by the same three things. A cold heart, a closed Bible, and an empty pew. Because apostasy is a falling away from Christ, a falling away from His Word, and a falling away from His people, the church. And what's the result? What is the end of this drift? What is the end of those who fall away from Christ? The result is the shipwreck of their soul. This is the meaning of verse 3. How shall we escape? Answer, we won't. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You won't. Just as a ship 
that drifts off course is lost. And just as a boat that slips off its moorings during a storm is dashed against the rocks, so is the soul that drifts away from Christ and from the salvation found only in Him everlastingly destroyed. Hear the warning of the Word of God. This is the first of many such warnings against apostasy that we will find in the book of Hebrews. And here's the question of the the hour, right? Does this violate our doctrine of eternal security? Not at all. At First Baptist Church Nixa, we believe wholeheartedly that all those whom he predestined, he also called. And all those whom he called, he also justified. And all those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, we believe that all those who were included in God's design in eternity past will be in God's presence in eternity future. That from eternity past to eternity future, from predestination to glorification, none are lost. We stand on that. And we cherish the truth spoken by our Lord in John chapter 10 when he says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life such that they will never perish and none will snatch them out of my hand. And we love that and we take comfort in that. Yes and amen. But we also believe Jesus' warning that it is only those who persevere to the end who will be saved. Matthew 10, 22 and 24, 13. And we believe his exhortation that it is only those who continue in his word who are truly his disciples, John 8, 31. Beloved, if the book of Hebrews is to make any sense to us, and if it is going to have its intended effect in our church and in our lives, then we need to come to grips with two very important essential truths, and they are this. Number one, not everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ actually possesses faith. And number two, the only sure evidence of the reality and the presence of saving faith is perseverance in that faith to the very end of our days. No perseverance, no faith. No faith, no salvation. We've got to hold the truth of the eternal security of the believer, and we've got to hold the requirement of the perseverance of the saints that's undergirded by the sovereign grace of God's preservation of the saints, and we've got to take those all together, and we've got to say, this warning was meant for me. And if I, having been baptized, twice in my case, And if I, having walked with Jesus for ten years, and if I, having gone to seminary and having preached for six years, if I turn away and walk away from this Jesus and neglect this salvation, I will be lost. And so will you. Beloved, hear the warning. It is for your good. The warning is meant to keep you tethered to the gospel. So do not sit back there and say, I did the salvation thing, I'm good. Saving faith is a faith that bears fruit. Saving faith is a faith that perseveres to the end. And so is saved. 
We dare not neglect so great a salvation by drifting away from Christ and drifting away from what we have heard. Because there is no escape for those who do. Be warned. But what do we do? What do we do when the current of the world is so strong that seeks to drag us out to sea? Dragging us away from Christ? Or what do we do when the storms of suffering, for instance, come and they threaten to shake us from our mooring and set us adrift out into sea? What, what can we do when we find that the fire of our devotion for Jesus has waned and, and all that remains is a few glowing embers of faith? What do we do? What is the remedy for the drift? Well, it's given in verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. The remedy for the drift, the remedy for the danger of neglecting so great a salvation is paying much closer attention to what we have heard, namely the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the new covenant given through him. That word that is translated pay attention is another nautical term. I mean, he's just painting a seafaring image here. It was occasionally used in nautical context for holding a ship on course towards its port. So what the author is doing is he's, he's encouraging us and exhorting us to chart a straight course through this life, straight for the gospel of Christ by pointing the bow of our ship directly at the word. Or if I can play a little bit more with this nautical metaphor, we might say that the word of Christ is the rudder of our ship that keeps us from drifting off course, or that it's the anchor of our soul that keeps us from drifting away. And I want you to notice that the exhortation in verse 1 is given in the first person plural. It's not a you exhortation, it is a we. This is not an individualized instruction. He's not saying, Mark, you're on your own in this thing. Just make sure that you don't screw up. He's addressing the church. Because perseverance in the faith is a team effort. It is a corporate responsibility. We are our brother's keepers. So he's going to make this connection as we go through the book of Hebrews between perseverance of the faith and and, and the gathering of the church. He's going to make this explicit when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Listen, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see that day drawing near. Beloved, together we need to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must watch over one another's souls so that we do not drift away. We're the lifeguards out on the beach watching those who are in the rafts and making sure that they don't drift away out the back doors of the church, out into destruction without being chased down. We're responsible for watching over our souls and for together persevering to the end. 
And the anchor to which we're called to hold fast is the word of Christ, right? We're paying much closer attention to what? To what we have heard, specifically that word spoken through the Son. One of our core values here at First Baptist Nixa is what we call word-centered worship, and it's really built upon this text. Because we believe that the word of Christ is essential to our perseverance, and because we believe that perseverance is essential to our salvation, we center everything that we do in corporate worship around the word that brings faith and sustains faith. Everything in corporate worship, everything in small group discipleship is rooted and grounded in this word so that we may pay much closer attention. That's why we sing the Word. That's why we pray the Word. That's why we hear the Word as it's taught and read. That's why we take the Word and we apply it and we press it into one another's hearts in our connect groups. That's why we see the Word as it's made visible in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We hear the word, we sing the word, we pray the word, we apply the word, we exhort one another in the word, we see the word, we respond to the word. It's all centered in the word because we need to pay much closer attention to this word so that we don't drift away. Now, I'm not denying the importance and the benefit of private devotions. I hope you have morning devotions or evening devotions or whenever it is that you have time in the word and prayer, but it's simply not what the author has in mind. The clear emphasis of the book of Hebrews is on the church. Uh, Now, I made a claim a few moments ago that apostasy is always marked by a closed heart or a cold heart, a closed Bible, and an empty pew. I want to take that statement, I want to flip it around, and I want to give you a word of encouragement. I want to give you a promise. If you will plug in to this body of believers and stay plugged in, you will not drift away. If you will plug in to a small group with whom you will share life and be exhorted and exhort them in return, you will not drift away. The journey of this Christian life is long and it is difficult and there are seasons and there are storms and there is suffering and there are droughts and there will be times of your life when you will come on the basis of this promise and you will walk in with a cold heart and you will leave with a cold heart. But the journey is long and the promise stands because he who promised is faithful. If you will plug in and stay plugged in to a word-centered body of believers, you will not drift away. The danger is the shipwreck of your soul. And that danger is real, but so is the remedy. The word of Christ will be to you an anchor that holds you secure in the harbor of salvation. And the word of Christ will be to you a rudder that keeps the bow of your ship pointed directly at the harbor of salvation. Stay anchored in the word and in the people of the word. That's what he's saying in chapter 2 and verse 1. We have one last consideration that's going to demand our attention this morning. All right, The author has warned us of the very real danger of drifting away from Christ and thereby forfeiting the salvation found only in Him. He has exhorted us 
in view of that danger, to pay much closer attention to the word of Christ and to hold fast to that anchor of the gospel together with a group, a body of believers, a church, to hold fast to the anchor of the gospel so that we do not drift away. Finally, he's going to provide us with some assurance that the anchor of the word of Christ is trustworthy, that it's strong enough to hold us through the storms, that it's strong enough to keep us steadfast and and secure in the harbor when the storm of judgment comes. In other words, he's going to answer the question, how do we know that we've latched on to the right anchor? How do we know that this anchor is strong enough to hold us when it really matters and to keep us safe? And he's going to put forward four pieces of evidence in verses 3 and 4, and I want to walk through them as we close. Number one, we know that the anchor of the gospel is true and trustworthy because it finds its source in Christ. After it was first spoken, not through angels, but through the Lord. This piece of evidence rests upon the foundation of chapter one. Who's spoken this word of the gospel? Well, the one who is the only begotten Son of God, whom God appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. The one who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. The one whom God sent to make purification of sins, and when He had done so, who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high with all rule and authority subjected to Him so that He stands as Lord of all and King of kings. That's who's given us this word. If the Hebrews could trust the word spoken through prophets, and if they could trust the word spoken through angels, how much more can they trust the word spoken through the Son? And so can you. You can trust the word of Christ. Second piece of evidence. We can trust this gospel because it was confirmed by many witnesses. He says it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Reminds me of Paul in in Acts 26. Paul is standing trial in Caesarea before uh, Agrippa and Festus, and he's really proclaiming the gospel in this trial in his defense. And he's speaking of the suffering and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And he makes this statement, and it's very important. It's in Acts 26:26, and he says, "The king, speaking of Agrippa, the king knows about these matters of which I speak." And I speak to him with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. Why is Paul persuaded of that? Because these things have not been done in a corner, he says. Thirty years after the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul stands trial before King Agrippa and Festus the governor, and he says, I know that you've heard about these things because everybody's heard about these things because God did them in the sight of all men. And that's what the author is pointing us to. The miracles of Christ were witnessed by dozens, hundreds, in some cases tens of thousands. When Jesus taught, he sat up on top of a mount and taught vast multitudes. Even the death and the resurrection of Christ took place during Passover when Jerusalem was absolutely swollen with pilgrims coming for the feast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul names no less than 514 witnesses 
of the resurrection to whom Jesus appeared in the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. And Paul says, you know what? Most of them are still alive, so if you don't believe me, you can go ask them. The gospel of our salvation rests upon a foundation of historical events. They are historical words spoken by an historical Christ. And these words and these events were confirmed and preached and written down by many reliable witnesses. But he goes on. Number three, he says that we can trust this gospel because of the testimony of God himself. God also, verse 4, testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles. You remember the book of Acts? Have you read the book of Acts? When When the eyewitnesses that we just spoke of, when they went out into the world, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When they went out proclaiming the gospel of the crucified and risen Son of God, God was pleased to testify to the authenticity of their message by means of signs and wonders and various miracles. Acts 2, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Acts 3, the lame were made to walk. Acts 5, the sick were healed and the demons were cast out. Acts 9 and Acts 20, the dead were raised. Even Peter's shadow, Acts 5, and even Paul's handkerchief, Acts 19, were endued with supernatural power. Why? God was testifying, saying, these are my messengers and this is my message. These were all supernatural acts of God testifying to the trustworthiness and the power of the gospel that they proclaimed. But there's a fourth. And it differs from the previous ones in that it is ongoing. The testimony of God is not confined to Jerusalem and it's not confined to the first century. For by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will, he continues to testify. The Holy Spirit testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel and to its power to save by the gifts which he gives to the church in accordance with his own sovereign will. Listen to me. Every church in every place and in every age receives these gifts of the Holy Spirit. You remember what the author spoke in Hebrews chapter 6 in the midst of that warning? He says that they have been enlightened and they've tasted of the heavenly gift and they've been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and they've tasted the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come. And listen, so have we. One of the evidences to the trustworthiness and the validity and the power of this gospel to save and to keep us saved is the transformed lives of the people in this room and the gifts of the Holy Spirit who resides within them. You want to know who we've got in this room? We've got failures. We've got fornicators. We've got adulterers. We've got thieves. We've got liars. We've got blasphemers. We've got adulterers. And we've got worse but we've been washed and we've been justified and we've been sanctified and we've been transformed by the word of Christ, by this gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a testimony that says, don't drift away. Beloved, this is a powerful gospel. And we would do well to pay much closer attention.
this is a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. And the word of God to you this morning, yes, to every one of you, is do not let go of it. Do not drift away from it. Do not neglect it. You give yourself to this word and to this gospel and to this Jesus every day for the rest of your lives and your faith and your devotion will have been well placed. Therefore, let us hold fast the confession of our hope firm without wavering for he who promised is faithful. I want to address three groups this morning in our time of response. The first are those who are safely within the harbor, as it were. An honest reflection of their soul reveals that the fire for Jesus is still burning. If that is you, then you need to heed the warning of this text in this way. Do not say that will never happen to me. So in this time of response, I exhort you to a prayer of commitment and and of desperation saying, Lord, keep me in the harbor. By your grace, keep my eyes open to the glory of Jesus and my attention fixed upon this word. Keep me plugged into his people. Keep me safe. Because I know that the strength to persevere does not reside within me. It resides within you. Keep me safe. There's a second group of you who are drifting out to the outer reaches of the harbor. And an honest reflection of your soul reveals a dimming flame. Embers that are growing cold. Your response this morning is to realize that the danger to your soul is real. The sure evidence of the reality of saving faith is that it perseveres. So you need to heed this warning and you need to, by grace, renew your perseverance and renew your faith and renew your devotion to Jesus. And you need to set the course of your ship back into the harbor. You need to commit yourself by grace, in His strength, through faith. You need to commit yourself to this Word as it is preached in corporate worship, as it is sung in corporate worship, as it is applied in small group discipleship. Come back. Hear the warning of the lifeguard saying, stop. Don't go. You come back. 
And there's a third group who have never entered the harbor. And this morning, if by God's grace you have recognized the greatness and the glory and the supremacy of this Jesus that we preach and this Jesus that we worship, and you've never committed yourself to Him, you've never repented of your sin and humbled yourself before Him and and called upon His name, then the invitation to you is to do that. Repent of your sin. Call upon Him. Say, Jesus, Savior, save me and keep me. As simple as that. Call upon His name and you will be saved. Whichever group you are in, the Word is not without application and relevance to you. So hear and respond. Lord, would you do your will in the midst of your people. Minister grace at the point of every need. We ask this in Jesus' name.